0: Our passage today is 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The grass with grass withers and the flowers fade.
1: So before we get started, um, we have friends, uh, Chinese friends, who are church planting in China and. Um, teaching at a secret seminary there um, and all of those things. But this morning we got word that they, um, the police and the authorities came to their door of this family's home. So I just want to pray for them really quick um, as we get started and as we sit here in our comfort and freedom um, to remember the persecuted church across the world, okay? So let me pray for that and then we'll jump into the text. Father in heaven, we do, um, we pray for this family this morning uh, who are doing the work of the gospel in a very hard place. And so I do pray for our friends that you would um, first and foremost that, that, that you would keep them safe, um, but we pray that their work would not be deterred by this. Um, and so I pray that you would continue to give um, Eddie and his wife um, boldness um, to proclaim the gospel um, to their people there in China, um, God, that you would um, use this as an opportunity to, uh, to water the seeds that, uh, that they have been planting there, and that you would make it grow, that you would make the church in China grow, even more, even if it's underground, just you would make it grow. Um, And that you would bring many people um, to faith in Jesus uh, in that part of the world. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We've been in this study for um, a few weeks, probably about five weeks now. And so the question that we've been sort of asking ourselves uh, throughout these texts is what does it look like to live as a unified body in a fractured, broken world? So what does it look like to, essentially, to live as the church, to truly live as the church in a world that is broken around us that doesn't have any answers or any really clear answers or lasting answers, So what does it look like for us to be a place where people can come and people can look at and say, that's what I want. That's what I want to be a part of. Those are the answers that I'm seeking. And I really believe that this is what Paul is getting at in his letter to the Corinthian church. And so we find ourselves in chapter 5 this morning as Paul continues on this um, particular teaching um, to this particular church in Corinth. So I read an article this week um, in a news publication out of England uh, and it had the title, this is the title of it, Britain is no longer a Christian country. Britain is no longer a Christian country. So the first couple of paragraphs of this, of this article, the, the writer gives a summary um, that what, the, what she believes to be true um, of why this is happening. And they did this, this big survey of, of, the, of the Church of England uh, and things like that. And it has everything to do with what is going on inside the church, specifically the Church of England, which is kind of the official church in England, and it has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. But this is what, it's, what, what she says, Britain can no longer be described as a Christian country Three-quarters of of Church of England priests believe, according to a landmark survey conducted by the Times, has found a strong desire among rank-and-file priests for significant changes in church doctrine on issues such as sex, sexuality, marriage, and the role of women to bring it into greater line with public opinion. So trying to bring all of these things that are taught traditionally within the church to bring it in line with what the public thinks and believes. A majority of priests want the church to start conducting same-sex weddings and drop its opposition to premarital and gay sex in results described as absolutely huge by campaigners. Now, obviously, this doesn't take into account any true gospel-centered churches in England and even churches uh, within the Church of England that are still continuing to preach the gospel. And I know some of these, uh, these, a lot of these churches exist in that part of, of the world. But it does give a glimpse into the impact that the church has on society when it begins to let sin thrive. So this morning, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul begins to turn in the direction that says uh, a Christian's moral force actually comes from their theology. It actually comes from their doctrine. It actually comes from what they believe about God. Because what you believe about God drives the way you carry out your life which in turn drives the way we carry out our life together as a local church. So I want want you to see this in three parts uh, of Paul's teaching here. First, we have to recognize that there is a problem. So we have to recognize the problem here in the text that Paul is addressing. Second, we need to understand how we are to respond to that problem before we can apply the solution to the problem. So three points, the problem, the response, the solution. So first, the problem. So, so the primary problem, believe it or not, that Paul is addressing here is not sexual sin. Now, we'll get to that at some point, and there is something to be said about it, but that is not what Paul is getting at here. The primary problem is how sin is being handled in the church. Just look, look back with me in the text at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, it is actually reported, so this is probably Chloe's people again, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not, not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. <clears throat> so to give some context here, This phrase, his father's wife, is most likely referring to a stepmother. So this isn't incest. This is referring to a stepmother here. And the situation here, culturally speaking, is probably a young wife um, as women... Speaking about a young wife being married to this father, because women in ancient times tended to marry quite young. So the situation is that there is a very good chance that the stepmother is closer in age to the son than to the father. Now, that does not make it right in any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't justify what's going on here. But I know if that was happening in our culture today, this would make for a really good reality TV show on Netflix. But in ancient culture, a relationship like this was against both Jewish law and Greco-Roman law. So Jewish law, if you just look in the book of Leviticus chapter 18, verse eight, "Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Boom, plain and simple. Don't do that. And then there's an account from a Roman lawyer named Gaius from the second century, and he wrote this about their own laws against this particular act. It is illegal to marry a father or mother's sister, nor can I marry her who was at one time my mother in law or stepmother. So, this was against the law. And surprisingly, uh, both of these are in place because of the harmful social effects this would have on the family. I know that's surprising to hear. But you can also see the problem, can't you? Those outside the Christian church see this offense as intolerable, abhorrent, harmful to the family structure, and even punishable by law to some extent. But those inside the church are tolerating it. And this, in turn, affects the church's gospel witness. Essentially, what you have happening here is the sexual ethic of the surrounding culture, at least on this particular matter, was more in line with the gospel and with the Bible than the church's sexual ethic was in Corinth. And just this simple, uh, this simple idea, this simple, of, uh, simple thing that's happening within the church threatens the very identity of the Christian community, much like what is happening with the Church of England right now. Because it's a public contradiction of what they believe. It's a public contradiction to the gospel message. So instead of confronting this sin, the church in Corinth just stands idly by. So why did they do that? There's a couple of reasons that exist here. First, there's speculation among scholars that this man, that they are not disciplining, not going after, not confronting in his sin, that he was one of considerable wealth and social standing in Corinth. So he was well-known. He was popular. He was, uh, you could say, uh, you know, uh, a a local celebrity. And it was an honor to have them in their church. And so they don't want to confront him because of that. And on top of that, the church in Corinth, the early church, was not uh, wealthy it didn't have a lot of resources. So to have one who had a lot of resources in your church would be helpful. So to call this man out in his sin was to possibly lose all of this. At least this is what the Corinthians feared. And you know what? This is, this is, this is also a danger for us in the American church um, to let sin reign because we fear that we will lose someone like this. I've seen it happen. I've seen uh, very wealthy men and women who are members of the church get away with just about anything within a local church context simply because they write a big check every month. Or they have some standing in the local community. Or they're, or they're politically connected or whatever it might be. But they are walking in sin. Some of them not even Christians. Christians. Or how often have you shrunk back from, con- from con- confronting someone in their sin because you fear they might get angry? Husbands and wives. Or your own friends. Or you fear that they might not be your friend anymore if you do that. In a way, when we do this, from, from, the, from the, you know, the largest extreme to the smaller extreme, We are doing exactly what is happening in Corinth. We're guilty of it. So that's the first reason. The second reason they stand idly by is more of a peek into what they believed theologically. So essentially what they are saying is, look, we're free in Christ. Paul has even preached that before. We are free in Christ. We are no longer bound by the law, so we'll do whatever we see fit for our cultural context. So if we're okay with just letting this man uh, sleep with his his, his dad's wife and and do whatever he wants to do, you know, we're just going to stand by, we're going to show grace to him, and we're just going to let him do it. And this is why Paul says in verse 2, you are arrogant, you're prideful. So back in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul warns the Corinthians not to go beyond what is written. So he says, don't go beyond what is written, which he, which he means is don't go beyond what is written in the Bible, in the Scriptures, which is exactly what the Corinthians were doing in this very instance. They are trusting in their own opinions and their own judgments over and against the Bible. And I'm sure this sounds uh, sounds familiar to some of you, um, but in a couple of weeks, we'll we'll begin to deal more directly in the area of human sexuality. But, But even now, think about your own views of, say, sex outside of marriage. What do you think about that? Most nowadays, even in the church, would say, not a big deal. I mean, For some, we're going to get married anyways. Might as well go ahead and seal the deal now. And it's okay. Or homosexual marriage. Some would say, even in the church, love is love. Why would God create someone in this way and expect them not to be happily married like everyone else? Pornography is rampant in the church. Why? And I think because of the exact reasons the Corinthians didn't confront this man in their church. You don't want to rock the boat. And so you stay quiet. Let me just say, as the church of Jesus Christ... Even in a small way, this small corner of the kingdom that Christ the King has, we have a duty to respond to sin in a certain way. Differently than the world responds to sin, which is just to uh, you do you and let it go. Because if we're going to live as a unified body in a fractured world, we cannot let sin run rampant amongst us. And this is why Paul gives the Corinthians and us the correct way to respond in verses 2 through 5. Paul says this, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body I am present in spirit as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the Corinthians have already demonstrated the inappropriate response to sin in the church. As one commentator said, The sin of pride had dazzled them so that they did not see things as they really were. Reality was blurred for them. The truth was foggy to them. And now Paul gives them the necessary response here in verse 2 when he simply says, Mourn and remove. Mourn and remove. So instead of being arrogant about this sin among you, you should instead be mourning that it exists among you. So what does it mean to mourn over sin? Well in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he actually commends them for their mourning over sin. He writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses eight through 10. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. So, Paul, Paul is essentially saying, look, I came in hard and fast. I know it was hurtful. I'm glad it hurt you, and this is why he's glad. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow or your mourning led you to repentance. Repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. Because to be sorrowful, to mourn over sin, especially your own sin, should then lead you to repent of that sin. That's so Paul is saying here. And this is not where the Corinthians are at in our text. So Paul tells them the necessary response to unrepentant sin that is among them. Uh, it's also something that we talked about in our church series back in July that's called Church Discipline. Now, I know if you were not here back in, in July to be offended by that word, I do know the word discipline does stir up negative images in some of your minds. You might think, you, you know, of getting a spanking when you were a child or you were getting in trouble when you were in school or your parents were getting you in trouble or whatever it might be. Discipline tends to be a negative thing in our mind. But let me just say, this is not what biblical discipline is. It's not meant to be negative. And I think John Calvin has the best explanation of what church discipline is when he says, discipline is a kind of curb to restrain and tame those who war against the doctrine of Christ, or it is a kind of stimulus by which the indifferent are aroused Sometimes also it is a kind of fatherly rod by which those who have made some more previous laps are chastised in mercy with the meekness of the Spirit of Christ. And I love that explanation because it it articulates that the goal of discipline is not revenge. The goal of discipline is not to just remove people that you don't like. The goal of discipline is not just to remove people that make you uncomfortable and to kind of chase them out of the church. Now, the goal of discipline is reconciliation back to Jesus and also reconciliation back to his bride, the church. That's the goal. Every single time, no matter what sin is being dealt with, the goal is always reconciliation to Jesus and to the church which really means that discipline is a grace of God. And I think I said this back in July, that if you are ever confronted by a friend, they, did, they just get really eager in wanting to apply this particular sermon this week, and you get called up, hey, can we have coffee? Um, you know, prepare yourself, because they might be ready to confront you in sin. And if they are confronting you in sin, and it is accurate, thank them. Don't get mad at them. Don't be angry with them. Don't, don't, uh, you know, stand up and toss your coffee into their face and walk out and never talk to them again. Thank them because that is a grace of God to you. And this is exactly Paul's intent with this particular man. Now, remember, the Corinthians Uh, they have a misunderstanding of the cross of Christ. They they have a misunderstanding of the gospel. They have a misunderstanding, we could say, of the grace of God. And I believe many churches don't practice church discipline, not because they don't want to get their members in trouble or or whatever it might be, because that's that's not what church discipline is, remember. But it's because they have a misunderstanding of the gospel. They have a misunderstanding of of grace. So I use this example from Jonathan Lehman's little booklet called Church Discipline back in July that I think is really helpful um, to what is going on in our text this morning because he says there are two kind of subtle, different versions of the gospel that exist today within the church and they sound, they sound very similar up to a point. So let me just read it. He has gospel one and gospel two. So, gospel one again, God, God is holy. We have all sinned, separate, separating us from God, but God sent his Son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works, we're justified by faith alone. So, so far, so good. We would all say yes and amen to all of that. But then, the gospel therefore calls all people to, quote, just believe. An unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. So if you notice, this, this sounds good up until a point. Up until the point of personal responsibility. And then that's when the philosophy of the world enters in. The philosophy says that says you do you as long as it makes you happy and as long as it doesn't hurt or harm anybody else. You are free to go about your merrily way. And this is where the Corinthians are. This is why Paul is addressing them. And and, in gospel two is where he's trying to get them. So remembering all of that that I read from the first part of gospel one that you agreed with, up until we're justified by faith alone, that's where it changes. This is what gospel two says at that moment. But the faith that works is never alone. The gospel therefore calls all people to repent and believe a contra-conditionally loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve and then enable you by the power of the Holy Spirit to become holy and obedient like his son by reconciling you to himself. God also reconciles you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his own holy character in triune glory. That's the gospel. You see, Paul is not trying to get rid of this man. It's not an out-of-sight, out-of-mind situation for Paul. Paul wants him to be reconciled to God, to his family even, that he's betraying, and to his church. Because that's the goal of church discipline. And you need to understand that goal as I read verses 4 through 5. When Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So two things to point out there. First, this is another strong indicator of the importance of formal church membership in a local body. Throughout chapter 5, Paul assumes this. He assumes that they have church membership with the language that he uses. So in verse 2 and verse 13, he uses the phrase, among you, among you. So he is, he is specifying a specific group of people. These are the people that are among you. And then in verse 4, he talks about being assembled. So in some way, shape, or form, this church is assembling together, similar to what we are doing right now. This is an assembly of the the saints. So they are assembling together. So this means we don't have jurisdiction outside of those who have covenanted with this body of believers. My pastoral authority is... Only reaches so far. I can't go down the street to another church and try to discipline that church's members. I can't discipline those who are just visiting here with us uh, on Sundays or at our city groups. We we can't do that. So this goes back to Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter sixteen. If you remember, this is before Jesus teaches on how you go about about applying and practicing church discipline. How do you handle the sin of your brother or sister? Um, And he begins by telling them in chapter 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is a symbolic gesture by Jesus that says the church has the authority to receive members, which we did a couple of weeks ago, and to dismiss members. And that might be dismissing members who are under church discipline at times. And if the church is to withstand the gates of hell, it cannot be a place where sin is championed or where sin is thriving, which is why Paul can say in verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul's wording here is meant to communicate the the, the, the gravitas of what is happening, the, the sort of the, the the heaviness of what the Corinthian church is getting wrong here. He to to let sin reign, to go against the standards set by the gospel. Paul is saying, we'll destroy the church and we'll destroy this man as well. You see, Paul's goal in disciplining this man was so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul wasn't kicking him out. It was to hopefully help him see his own folly, see his own sin, and repent and believe the gospel anew to be reconciled to Jesus, and to be reconciled to the bride. Secondly, to practice discipline is to keep us as the church from being hypocrites. Uh, this was happening in the Corinthian church. The Jews who were the, the, the kind of the outside religious uh, people of the day outside of Christianity, uh, and the Romans who we would consider classify as the non-religious, Both were looking at the church compromise what they said they believed. They were looking at it and they, Paul says, they're appalled at what they see. So I've shared this equation before. Professed belief plus actual living equals actual belief. Professed belief plus actual living equals actual belief because belief and lifestyle are inextricably linked You can't say you believe one thing and then completely live in a different way than what you believe. Because when that happens, you actually see what that person actually believes. And this is true for the man committing sin within the church, but also true for the church in which this sin is being ignored. So that's Paul's response. Discipline in hopes of salvation, and now we'll learn what the solution is because this response isn't in anger or retribution. It's grounded in the gospel, which is the solution to all of this. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is bringing, this view, uh, bringing into view the reason behind this discipline, and he uses this metaphor of leaven to illustrate the consequences of leaving sin unchecked in the church, So when baking bread, as all of you would know, if you've ever received a loaf of bread from Paul and had him explain to you that process, um, leaven or yeast doesn't just stay in one small part of the loaf that you are trying to bake. It permeates the entirety of it. And you don't need a lot to do it. You only need a very tiny amount for this to happen in the baking process. Well, the same is true for sin, Paul is saying. Because the church is the loaf here. And and what one person does within the church impacts the entire community. So church discipline is not necessarily just for that one person to be redeemed and to be reconciled. It's also for the safety and protection of the entire church. And that's what Paul is saying. And so it it must be this yeast that is building must be removed entirely for the good of that individual, but also for the good of the church body. So Paul says in verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, which is the Corinthians' current way of practice within the church, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, the festival of unleavened bread, as uh, Terry read earlier from Exodus 12, was a reminder to Israel of how God had rescued them from Egypt and brought them to the land God had promised to them. So, this was the Passover celebration, and if you didn't know, the Passover, so the cross and the resurrection are are the central events of the New Testament. The Passover is the central event of the Old Testament, And so Paul is now saying to the Corinthians, using this illustration, you have been rescued, just like like God's people were rescued in Egypt. You have been rescued, though, from the realm of sin and death to the realm of righteousness and life, because Christ, Christ is your Passover lamb. And because of this reality... They are called toward what the person and work of Christ has done and what it has made them into. So when Paul tells them, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, let us therefore celebrate the festival. He's using the festival of Passover that the Jews celebrated for a week, for seven days, once a year. Paul is using that to say now we are a people of the new Passover. We are a people of the better Passover. We are part of a Passover where Jesus is our lamb, slain once and for all, and the celebration is ongoing. It's not just a week, it's 24-7. So that means, as people of this Passover, which if you are a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you are to live your whole life like a sacred festival, In celebration and in praise, and a life consecrated always to God. So, this means we're not living lives of sin, but lives of truth. Now, in verses 9 through 13, Paul describes what this looks like in the church. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is a critical teaching moment here because Paul is telling them one way to live, a very specific way to live as a unified body in a fractured world. And it's not what you think it is. Because as it stands now, within just kind of evangelicalism, just broadly speaking, within the evangelical church in, in America, because that's where we are, we tend to point our gaze outward rather than inward. So when I was a kid, I was not allowed to listen to, uh, to heavy metal music um, because the church taught it would make you into a Satan worshiper. So if you, if you remember records and things like that, the records are making a comeback, but uh, if, you played the, if you played the record backward, it would give you a satanic message. Did you guys know that? No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all, but the church taught that it did, and so heavy metal music was banned because it was evil and it was bad and keep it away from us. Um, I was also led to believe by the church, anybody, including uh, of age adults, who drank alcohol were pagans, they were not Christians at all. And I was led to believe that for a number of years. But then you also think about, think about the culture wars that rage within the church uh, continually. Many Christians during, uh, during the Christmas season um, boycott Starbucks because they take Merry Christmas, They took Merry Christmas a number of years ago off of their cups. So we'll, we'll go get our pumpkin spice latte, but come Christmas time, no way, we're not doing that. Or you think about things like Harry Potter. witches and wizards and magic. we got to stay away from those things. Or, or boycott Disney because of certain things that are happening within it. Um, which for the most part has been completely ineffective. The culture at large, it really doesn't even put a dent into what's happening. Meanwhile, sexual sin, gluttony pride all of these things that Paul mentioned revilers are running rampant inside our churches because when Paul says don't associate with the sexually immoral he's not speaking about those outside the church why verse 10 Paul says, not at all meaning the sexual, sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So Paul is saying if you were to avoid those in the world, then you would have to sequester yourself away from the world, which would then uh, make you ineffective and impractical. So Paul, I believe, is... Not just pulling this out of thin air, I believe Paul is teaching what Jesus taught in John 17 in his high priestly prayer when he is praying for you and for me. And he prays this to his father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, Jesus is not asking his father for his disciples to be taken out of the world so that they can be safe and secure away from everything that's evil and wrong and bad. Instead, he's praying for them as they are to be sent into the world covered in truth. And so these words are, from Jesus are important because this because hypocrisy is what the church gets accused of most often, which means if we're not living in the way Paul calls the church to live here, addressing the sin that's among them, the, the things that are happening in-house, then the church will not be an effective witness to the world. The world will look at us and has every right to do so and say, there's nothing different about you. There's nothing different about you. It looks the same in there as it does out here. Why would I want to be a part of that? So how do we do this well? How do we, how do we love a world that is broken without compromising the gospel? And so we'll close on this. But this is why I love men like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and Francis Schaeffer and people like that because their strategy for reaching the lost uh, stays in the same stream as the Apostle Paul. And I think it, I think it always it kind of um, has these three uh, major kind of tenets in common. And so these three tenets are being winsome, being missional, and then being gospel-centered. Winsome missional and gospel center. So to be winsome is not to water down the message of the gospel or create an easier version of what it means to follow Jesus. That is not what it means to be winsome. You're not you're not trying to 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 kind of ease the blow of, of the cross. Paul is saying there is absolutely no way you can do that. You can't dress it up. So to be wi- winsome instead is is finding ways in your context that God places you in during the week, and you guys are all over the place during the week, to find ways in those times to be brave with the gospel, to be careful and wise in how you communicate the truth of the gospel to your neighbors. Now, I'm not giving you any specific strategies because you're going to different places and you have different freedoms and and where you go. So so you have to to be the one to get creative. You have to be the one to to kind of understand your context, your culture that you're in, whether it's at Fort Gordon or at the hospital or or in the classroom or wherever it might be, and ask God to open doors to the gospel for you. And he will do it. So being winsome. Second is to be missional. To to be missional is a word we use around here, is to be actively engaged in evangelistic efforts in everyday life. Moment by moment. moment. Not just kind of like this, this, you know, rush out and go knock on doors and then come back home. But in every moment we are to be living as missional people. So this is a verbal witness, but it's also much more than just a verbal witness. Um, I think we underestimate how effective acts of service go in the workplace or or at your school if you're a student, just simply serving somebody Or, or, um, or, or a kind word to someone that you see in the grocery store or a word of affirmation to someone, hey, you're doing a really good job. I really appreciate what you do here or even an invitation to coffee, or even hospitality, inviting the stranger around the table so that they're no longer a stranger, or to invite them to church or to your city group, but being missional in everyday life. And then finally, all of this needs to be gospel-centered. The theologian D.A. Carson wrote concerning what a gospel-centered church looks like. He says, um, this church looks like the gospel is regularly presented not only as truth to be received and believed, but the very power of God to transform. One of the most urgently needed things today is a careful treatment of how the gospel, biblically and ritually understood, ought to shape everything we do in the local church. All of our ethics in all of our priorities. And this is what Paul has been getting at in his letter to the Corinthian church. To live as a unified community in a broken world means sin, of all things, sin cannot go unchecked. It means we can't compromise on what the Bible teaches We we can't bend to how the world would prefer us to be, how how the world would prefer us to act by making the gospel more appealing to them or to simply stop preaching the gospel because that's really what ends up up happening. And so Paul ends this part of his letter, chapter 5, on a rather somber note when he says in verse 13, God judges those outside so leave, leave that to God to do his work, to do his bidding, and he will do it. Purge the evil person from among you. And so Paul is saying that in order to be a compelling, unified community in a fractured world, the balm of grace must be applied to every part of the church and that includes your own heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are a you are you are the the God of grace. That you are a God who has shown us uh, more grace than we deserve, by sending your Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, you you have you have created the solution to our problem. And so, God, I pray that even even as Matthew prayed earlier, as, even if we've we've believed the gospel over and over again, that we would believe it again anew today. That it would continue to transform our hearts. But I also pray for those who have never believed, that they would believe today as well, that their heart would be transformed, that they would see the sin that is, that is ruling their life, and they would repent of it and believe the gospel where true life is found. And so, God, I pray that we would be a holy people celebrating this holy Passover in Christ every single day of our life, and that the world would look at us and be able to say, that is what I want. We pray all of this uh, in the one who makes all of this possible, Jesus Christ. Amen.